Open your Bibles to the book of Acts. Well, I guess everybody that loves the Bible is still in the cafe. All right. Open your Bibles to the book of Acts. We are in this series called The Spirit-Filled Church. We have two goals. We want to learn what it meant so that we can live what it means. That's so good. So good. All right. Here we go. I'm going to read to you from in the book of Acts chapter 19, verses 1 through 20. You ready? And if you're, if you're around the building, you cannot escape the sound of my voice. We have all the screens. While Apollos was at Corinth, Paul took the road through the interior and arrived at Ephesus. There he found some disciples and asked them, uh, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? Now, that's exactly how it sounds in the original, if you were worried about <laughs> what I'm here for. They answered, no, we have not heard that there is a Holy Spirit. So Paul asked, well, then what baptism did you receive? John's baptism, they said. Paul said, well, John's baptism was a baptism of repentance. He told the people to believe in the one coming after him, that is Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. When Paul placed his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they spoke in tongues and prophesied. <laughs> I like this church. There were about 12 men in all. We'll come back to that. Paul entered the synagogue and spoke boldly there for three months, arguing persuasively about the kingdom of God. But some of them became obstinate. They refused to believe and publicly maligned the way. So Paul left. He took the disciples with him and had discussions daily in the lecture hall of Tyrannus. This went on for two years so that all the Jews and the Greeks who lived in the province of Asia heard the word of the Lord. God did extraordinary miracles through Paul. So that handkerchiefs and aprons that had touched him were taken to the sick and their illnesses were cured and the evil spirits left them. Some Jews who went around driving out evil spirits tried to invoke the name of Jesus over those who were demon possessed. They would say, in the name, this is how they did it, in the name of the Lord Jesus, whom Paul preaches, I command you to come out. Seven sons of Sceva, a Jewish chief priest, were doing this. One day, the evil spirit answered them. <laughs> it's all fun and games until they answer you. <laughs> One day the evil spirit answered them, Ah, Jesus I know. <laughs> Mufasa. <laughs> and Paul I know about. But who, pray tell, are you? Then <laughs> the man who had the evil spirit jumped on them, overpowered them all. He gave them such a beating that they ran out of the house naked and bleeding. When this became known to the Jews and the Greeks living in Ephesus, they were all seized with fear, and the name of the Lord Jesus was held in high honor. 
many of those who believe now came and openly confessed. <laughs> openly confessed what they had done. And a number brought who had practiced sorcery brought their scrolls together and burned them publicly. When they calculated the value of the scrolls, the, the total came to about 50,000 drachmas. A drachma was a, a workman's day's wage. So 50,000 days wages. I don't know what that is with inflation. Dr. Zeff says about five mil. That's one spendy bonfire. Yikes. But worth every wasted book. In this way, the word of the Lord spread widely and grew in power. In this way. The sentence today was going to be this. The spirit-filled church confronts suffering and drives out evil. That's a pretty good one. But it's actually this. The Spirit-filled church emphasizes the Holy Spirit. And He does the rest. In Acts 19, Luke records an invasion from heaven. An invasion from heaven into the city of Ephesus one of the largest cities of the Roman world and a great commercial center. Ephesus was also famous for the practice of magic. One of its greatest claims to fame was the Temple of Artemis. It was, it was huge and constructed entirely of marble. Paul arrived in Ephesus on his third missionary journey and remained there for about a period of around three years, somewhere around between 52 and 55 A.D. Now, Luke describes Paul's initial meeting of believers he found there in verses 1 and 2. Luke says, Paul came to Ephesus and found some disciples. He asked them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said to him, no, we haven't even heard there is a Holy Spirit. That should be Probably best understood the vernaculars. We have not heard the Holy Spirit has come. We, have not, we, don't, we, we don't know that he is yet. Well, who were these people? Luke describes them as disciples, as believers. Somebody say disciples. disciples. Luke only uses the word when he says that so-and-so was a disciple or the disciples. He's always referring to the church. He's referring to followers of Jesus. Unless, like in the Gospels, he may refer to, he may, he, may, um, he may qualify it, disciples of the Pharisees or disciples of John the Baptist. But if he just says he came to disciples, especially in the book of Acts, when he says disciples, he means the people he's been talking about the whole time. And yet there are some objections that say, well, well wait a minute. He, they couldn't have been disciples because they confessed to being unaware of the Holy Spirit, let alone recipients of the Holy Spirit. But the text speaks without any kind of ambiguity here. Luke describes them as disciples the same way he has all the time. Furthermore, Paul's question to these believers implies a great deal about Paul's own certitude about them. Paul asks them if they received the Holy Spirit when 
or since they believed. As a matter of fact, the, the, the wooden version in the Greek is even more telling. He says this, having believed, comma, did you receive? The only question in the sentence is, did you receive? There wasn't, do you, it wasn't, do you believe or are you believers? It's having believed, that's the fact. Having believed, did you receive? Paul's question infers not only that they believed, but that they believed in such a way that Paul expected they should have received the Spirit. But for some reason, he asks them, why or if they had? Why would Paul ask these believers, coming into their company, a, 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 a non-robust company of 12, keep in mind the day of Pentecost, 3,000 respond at one time. In chapter 2, thousands of people are responding at a time. Chapter 19, in a massive city, there's 12. Holding on for dear life. Why does Paul come to these 12 and ask them if they've received the Spirit? We aren't told. It probably wasn't a matter of doctrine. There's no clue in the text that he came there and spent some time with them and listened to them teach and said, hey, wait a minute, guys, you're missing a wee little something there. It, it seems to be much more urgent or immediate than that. The text seems to indicate that they, they lacked some kind of evidence, some kind of expression of the Spirit's infilling or influence in their gatherings. It may have been a lack of power in their, in their midst. Paul, we know that Paul believed that the kingdom of God was not a matter of talk, but a matter of power. It was something he looked for, something he anticipated, something he practiced. Or... His question may have been prompted by the absence of what we would call prophetic expression among the believers. All throughout the book of Acts, as the Spirit comes upon people, there is a response. They speak prophetically, a, a language of prayer and praise. We, we call tongues, or they prophesy. They declare the wonders of God, the glory of God in their understanding, or both. We aren't told. And in, instead of trying to proof text our way into what was what was missing we probably should just realize that that whatever influence of the spirit should have been there was not it may have been a lack of boldness it may have been a lack of holiness it could have been a lack of genuine love has anybody ever built a fire built a fire outside or or built one poorly inside I've done both, especially the latter. If you, if, you are, if you build a fire, and you're around the fire, you will smell like smoke. As a matter of fact, it will be very hard to get the smell of smoke off of you. Parenthetically, if you build a fire poorly in your house, you have to call people to come to your house and get the smell of smoke out of your house. I've heard. <laughs> the point is that where there is real fire, there's smoke. And if you spend any time near a fire, you will smell like it. 
And what sounds to me like is Paul comes to Ephesus and says, why don't any of y'all smell like smoke? Where to fire? Something is missing. There's no condemnation. He doesn't throw rocks. He doesn't swat them, smack them. He just says, where, where to smoke? So Paul leads them immediately to receive the Spirit. He baptizes them again. The only time that in Annax that happens, that's a fun discussion, but not necessary today. He baptizes them, and he lays hands on them, and then they begin speaking in tongues and prophesying. And then after these charisms, these charismatic expressions, Paul seems satisfied. He doesn't ask again. He's not satisfied after the water. He's not even satisfied after laying hands on them. But when they begin, when they respond with this charismatic expression, that is the assurance that they and Paul needed to know. They've received the Spirit. You know, the Spirit wants to give us an assurance of His presence. He wants us not just to believe, but to know, to have assurance. So then after this, that's Paul arriving in Ephesus and, and ministering or ushering, emphasizing the Holy Spirit. Then he begins his ministry in Ephesus. Luke tells us about it. Verses 8 through 10 relay a summary of Paul's preaching and teaching. And Luke claims that Paul's preaching and teaching ministry was extensive enough that, quote, all who lived in Asia heard the word of the Lord. All who lived in that region near Ephesus, and this would include what you will, what we'll see later, the seven, even those seven churches in the first part of Revelation, kind of that circle of churches in the in that south. What is that over here? What's west? Is that southwest Turkey? Is that right? I don't even know where I am. But over here, that that region of Turkey would have been saturated with the knowledge of the word. Now, in Luke style, Luke he, verse ten gives a general summary. And then after a general summary, Luke always gives specific examples, sometimes extraordinary examples, which is what we see again. Luke 10, the word spread. Verse 11, the reader is told that God was performing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul so that handkerchiefs or aprons were carried off of his body to the sick, and diseases left them, and evil spirits went out. Power was flowing from the ministry, the hands of Paul, to such an extent that people were just grabbing his, his handkerchiefs. You know, I don't think he was, you know, selling them. I am being careful. That's all I said. I'm just saying they grabbed them. Oh, sweaty. Yoink. And they run and they put them on folks who are sick or oppressed. And these things become instruments of healing and deliverance. Luke says God was doing extraordinary miracles. Why were these extraordinary? And this is super important for us to pause and recognize. Why are these miracles called something that were out of the ordinary? They were, they were extraordinary because they were performed without the personal agency of the apostle. But they were not generically different from those wrought on other occasions. 
Healing and deliverance are not unusual. Healing and deliverance are not extraordinary. As a matter of fact, healing and deliverance are a normal part of the kingdom of God. So what distinguished them was not their nature or even their number, but in, just in the way that it was going on. In other words, Luke was saying, it was getting crazy. They, didn't, they weren't even waiting for church. God was responding to their faith and their desperation with powerful compassion. God was doing miracles. In short, this was happening in Ephesus Human misery, the fruit of Satan's power, was being wiped off the face of the earth because of the prevailing influence of the Spirit. Ephesus was being overcome by the Holy Spirit. Ephesus was being overcome by the Holy Spirit. Now Luke continues the story in such a way that contrasts this counterfeit effort at exorcism against the real power of the Spirit. He tells us that uh, traveling Jewish exorcists attempted to emulate Paul's ministry. I adjure you by the... Woo. And seven sons of Sceva, what Luke calls a, a Jewish chief priest, attempt this and they're confronted and they're overcome by an evil spirit. And this evil spirit says, I recognize Jesus, I know about Paul, but I do not know you. This story suggests, friends, that demons have some kind of real-time knowledge of shifts in the spiritual realm and even seem to be aware of people who are operating in it. Like they all got cell phones. It's no surprise that the evil spirit recognizes Jesus. They always did that. Whenever he showed up in the room, they shrieked. Ha! He didn't even say anything. Ah! <laughs> that he knows about Paul is intriguing, but not necessarily explained. I think it could be explained by just answering this question. What is it that Paul and Jesus had in common? Smoke. <sighs> same Holy Ghost. Somebody said same Holy Ghost. <laughs> But what is clear is this, is that evil spirit, he has no regard for those attempting to merely use the name of Jesus as an incantation. The demonized man singularly overcomes seven men, physically assaulting them, sending them on their way naked and bleeding and gross and embarrassed. It seems evident that at least one point intended by this particular anecdote is to make clear to the reader the rippling effects of Paul's ministry are spirit-empowered, authentic expressions of the name of Jesus compared to hollow superstition and imitation. Now Luke does not, I don't believe, he just relates the story to us simply to regale us, but to draw our attention to the effect to the conclusion verses 17 through 20 as much as paul's powerful ministry was effective the the effects of this exorcism gone wrong had even 
further impact. When the news of it spread, fear fell upon the community, and the name of Jesus was magnified. The name of Jesus was magnified. Would you say it with me? The name of Jesus was magnified. And then Luke relays that many of those who believed kept coming, confessing, and disclosing their practices. And they brought their scrolls and they burned them in repentance and in rejection. And then because of the authentic power flowing, and because of the exposure of what, what has failed and counterfeit, Luke says in verse 20, the word of the Lord was growing mightily and prevailing. Paul's ministry in Ephesus is nothing short of an invasion from heaven and an assault on the domain of darkness. In a city rife with idolatry and famous for its practice of magic, God used Paul to demonstrate the superiority of the name of Jesus Christ by the power of the Spirit. Paul ushered the promise of the Spirit to the believers. And then the Spirit ushered the might of heaven to the city. And what the Spirit did there, what the Holy Spirit did there, He can do here. If we will give him the same pride of place, if we will give him emphasis, if we will give him room, if we will not neglect his presence, his testimony, if we will keep ourselves open and hungry and humble and tender before the Lord, if we will prize the promise of the Spirit first, if we will make sure we always smell like smoke, If in our own lives we will give the Spirit the same emphasis, He will usher in the assurance and the influence of heaven. Can we stand together? about this. For 
here on, we're going to follow Paul. Trial, tribulation, shipwreck, and arrest. Here in Acts 19 is one more clarion call to remind us that we, the Spirit-filled church, must emphasize yes. the Spirit. Yes. I'm going to let you go here in just one minute. I'm going to ask my prayer workers to come. And, but I want to give opportunity for anybody in this room. Listen to this. Paul began this by saying, have you received the Spirit since you believed? God wants you to know. God wants you to have the assurance of the Spirit in your life. There's no reason for you to walk around confused or wondering. If you are, you might as well just lean in and ask. He wants to give us the same assurance that he gave those believers in Ephesus. He has a gift for you as well. As we ask for the Holy Spirit to fill us, he consistently gives us a gift, a charismatic expression, a language of prayer and praise. What a gift, what a marvelous gift, but also an assurance his presence. So if you'd like prayer this morning, I'm going to invite you to come. If you'd like, these will pray with you and for you. But one more time, can we just all together just honor his presence? Sing this chorus again. Holy Spirit, I